He's big and strong, he's sad and mad, and a little bit funny. You are listening to the Crash Program. Welcome to Season 2 of the Crash Program. I'm your host, Crash Barry. Season 2, a.k.a. Tough Island, is where I tell stories about living on Maine's most remote inhabited island. The Crash Program is commercial-free thanks to listener support via Patreon, where five bucks a month gets you all sorts of perks, including a limited-edition Mary Margaret sticker and access to a Patreon-only audio collection of stories from my time in the U.S. Coast Guard fighting the war on drugs and the war on Haitian refugees. Plus, after six months, you'll receive a signed copy of my novel, Sex, Drugs, and Blueberries, or the print version of Tough Island. Ten bucks monthly gets you the stuff I just mentioned, plus an invite to a really fun annual meetup in Maine. Visit CrashBerry.com for all the details. Now, on to the program. Chapter 10 The Gut, the name for the narrow channel in front of Captain Edwin's fish house, separated Matinicus from Wheaton Island, and the Gut was another distraction. During the incoming and outgoing tides, the sea flowed fast through the Gut, like a river almost. The width and velocity of the water changed with the passage of the tide. And at the lowest of low tides, the gut was barely a foot wide, a mere trickle, and the tideland of the lower harbor's seascape turned lunar, and a temporary land bridge made it wicked easy to walk between the two islands. But when the tide turned, the bridge disappeared. The fella hollered. Ahoy there! It was a summer day, late in the afternoon. I stood on the edge of my wharf, covered in fish guts and smoking a cigarette. Standing on Wheaton's beach was a man and a woman, and I didn't recognize them. Islanders wouldn't let a rising tide maroon them on Wheaton's. And these folks had the looks of yachtsmen. They must have boldly ignored all the warning signs in the sailing cruising guides that recommended avoiding Matinicus because of its reputation as a tough island. Ahoy! We're stuck over here! Help us! yelled the woman. Come get us! I just stood there and stared at them. Help us! the woman yelled again. The magic word. Twenty dollars, and I'll come and get you. They waved me over, so I launched Captain Edwin's skiff and rowed the hundred yards to Wheaton's Beach. One of the easiest twenties ever, and I made them pay even before they got in the skiff. What was that noise? It was driving me crazy on a Sunday afternoon. 
I was sitting at my desk trying to type a poem. The dude who works for the telephone company has a shop near my shack. The telephone company employee was one of my closest neighbors, at least during the workday, on this remote Maine island. And recently, I started obsessing about him. As a way to shake up my writing, I decided to focus on my immediate surroundings and the people I see, meaning the lower harbor of Matinicus, rather than distant lands like Haiti or Los Angeles. What was that noise? I peered out the side window and didn't see anything unusual. So I returned to my poem writing. He drives his telephone company van so slowly. The speedometer needle doesn't move. I'd been versifying about how slow the telephone company fella drove. When I'm out walking, I overtake him and the telephone company dude returns my wave as if a pedestrian passing on the left was the most normal thing in the world. And I knew lots about the telephone company guy because my girlfriend's mother, who grew up on the island, loved to gossip about the telephone company dude. Alice's mom had known the telephone company guy forever and swore he used to be the most handsome man on the outer banks of Penobscot Bay, and, she said, a wonderful dancer. Alice's mother also told me about how the phone company dude spent a small fortune on canned cat food to feed all the feral island cats in our neighborhood. And she told me about how he loved birds and obsessively built and collected birdhouses. And Alice's mom didn't seem to notice the ironic conflict between his two hobbies. Even at 70-something years old, the fellow was still good-looking, with a tanned, wrinkled face and a shock of long gray locks. His shirt was always unbuttoned enough to see a gold chain dangling amid his thick, curly chest hair. What was that noise? It was driving me crazy. Whenever the battery-operated clock mounted to his dashboard sounded the alarm, the telephone company dude would get into his van and drive home slowly to give his bedridden wife her next meal of pain pills. What the hell was that damn noise? Couldn't write poetry with such a distraction? So I went outside and down the stairs and on to Captain Edwin's wharf. I lit a cigarette and looked toward where the sound was coming from. A hundred feet to the north stood the star of my poem, the telephone company dude, surrounded by a herd of feral felines. 
the telephone company guy repeatedly reached into a large cardboard box propped atop an empty lobster crate and tossed silver objects down a legend into the rising tide. The empty cat food cans with labels removed sang and clattered all the way down to the water's edge. I stepped behind a pile of traps to hide and get a better view. Each cat followed the telephone company dudes every movement attentively. Over and over and over, one by one by one, until the box was empty of cat food cans. Was it 50 or 60 or 100 or 1,000? I don't know. Many minutes had passed, and the pile of cans on the ledge was sizable. The sea approached and lapped at the tin and tasted metal. I wonder how many high and low tides it would take to wash the cans out to sea. The dude turned and slowly walked towards the telephone company shop. His herd of cats followed him. And then I climbed the stairs to my room and sat back down at the typewriter and started the poem over again with new images and metaphors. How long does it take for seawater to rust an empty can back into mineral form? I'm not the only one who wrote poetry on that particular wharf. Edna St. Vincent Millay, Vincent, as she was known, was an occasional island visitor as a young poetress before she earned international acclaim as a swinging, opinionated, vivacious, iconoclastic, Pulitzer Prize-winning wordsmith. 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 Vincent and her mother and her sisters were pals with Captain Edwin's grandparents in the early 1900s, and legend has it that the adolescent Vincent was often seen sitting on the edge of my wharf, pen and paper in hand, her red hair windblown, working her word magic. So I went and read everything I could by and about Vincent. Love is not all. It is not meat, nor drink, nor slumber, nor a roof against the rain. And I fell in love with her and her unconventional lifestyle. Nor yet a floating spa to men that sink and rise and sink and rise and sink again. I wish I could have met her. Love cannot fill the thickened lung with breath nor clean the blood, nor set the fractured bone. I made love to her. Yet many a man is making friends with death, even as I speak, for lack of love alone. It well may be that in a difficult hour, 
pinned down by pain and moaning for release, or nagged by want past resolution's power, I might be driven to sell your love for peace, or trade the memory of this night for food. It well may be. I do not think I would. Just knowing that she stood on my wharf, pen in hand, was an inspiration for a young wannabe poet like me. Well, wasn't the exact same wharf. The decking was new since her time on the island, and many of the pilings have been replaced, but some of the cross timbers dated from her era, and the view would have been quite similar except the settlement on Wheaton's Island would have still been occupied. Vincent's visits to Matinicus obviously stuck with her. The island and the gut made an appearance in Sonnet 36, which my sweet wife Sweetgrass will now recite and sing for you. Hearing your words and not a word among them, tuned to my liking on a salty day, when inland woods were pushed by winds that flung them, hissing to leeward like a ton of spray. I thought how off Matinicus the tide came pounding in, came running through the gut. from the rock the warning whistle cried and children whimpered and the doors blew shut there in the autumn when the men go forth with slapping skirts the island women stand in gardens stripped and scattered peering north with dahlia tubers dripping from the hand the wind of their endurance driving south flattened your words against your speaking mouth hearing your words and not a word among them tuned to my liking on a salty day when inland woods were pushed by Winds that flung them Hissing to leeward Like a ton of spray I thought how off Matinicus The tide came pounding in Came running through the gut While from the rock the warning whistle cried and children whimpered and the doors blew shut there in the autumn when the men go forth with slapping skirts the island women stand in gardens stripped and scattered peering north with dahlia tubers Dripping from the hand The wind of their endurance Driving south 
flattened your words against your speaking mouth. I was not a good enough poet to use the gut metaphorically to explain the wallop of heartbreak. My prosaic imagery was raw and merely retold what I witnessed. I watched Captain Red toss two full plastic trash bags into the rising tide on the way to his mooring. One morning, while working on Captain Edwin's wharf, I witnessed Captain Red's brazen litter-bugging. Captain Red is rumored to be linked to an outlaw motorcycle gang. At least Captain Donald drove the dotted eye away from Matinicus before disposing of all his home trash into the ocean. Captain Red is a known thief, liar, and bully. Captain Red motored out of the island while I continued moving traps around the wharf. The view, except for the two black bobbing bags of trash, was fabulous. Then I spotted a couple of sea kayaks in Old Cove, headed towards the gut. Empowered by their epic voyage, enamored by the rustic and seemingly pristine lower harbor, two kayakers paddling between islands were greeted by two floating bags of garbage. My replacement as Captain Donald Sturman was Huey. Huey only spoke to me once, just minutes before he killed himself. It was a Sunday afternoon in August, and I was chilling on my wharf. getting high and enjoying a cup of tea when Huey roared down the dirt road. On the Honda-matic that Captain Donald let all his stern men use, Huey almost crashed into a five-tall tower of traps piled on the side of the road. He jumped off the motorcycle in a cloud of dust and ran toward me. Where the f she? He hollered. Laura, get your ass out here now! Dude. Where's Laura? What the f are you talking about? Where the f is my girlfriend? I have no idea. I wasn't a old lady. Barely spoke to her when I saw her at the well or post office. Never more than a hello, how do you do? She was cute for the island and young. She lived with Huey in my drafty old room, overrun with mice. Word was they were getting married. Where the f*** is she? Huey glared at me, his eyes crazed with rage. Laura! Not sure what to do. I was bigger, tougher, and meaner than him, and, and he knew it. Laura! Plus, maybe he realized his girlfriend wasn't in my shack. Anyways, he didn't say another word. He climbed back on the Honda-matic and sped away. Back towards his shack, my old home. This is what happened next, according to the stern men, 
who witnessed the whole damn mess. Huey raced over to Captain Donald's brother's Sternman Shack, a.k.a. Jimmy's Shack, hey there. where Jimmy and a couple other Sternmen were hanging out and smoking herb. Jimmy, let me borrow a shotgun. What do you need a shotgun for? So I can kill my lying, cheating girlfriend. Oh, no, I don't think so. <sighs> Dude, come on, calm down. No, I won't calm down. Let me borrow your 9 mil, please. Oh, uh, no, dude. I'm begging you. Lend me your 9 mil. If you think I'm going to lend you a Laura! gun... You are nuts. <laughs> Huey stormed off and ran along the shore path. Jimmy and the other fellas watched as he climbed down the ladder of the steamboat wharf... I wonder where he's going. ...and took Captain Donald's skiff and headed toward the moorings. From Jimmy's shack, they observed Huey's strange behavior. The dude lugged two 50-pound bags of salt from the bait scow and hauled them into the skiff, and then he motored over to the dotted eye. He put the 50-pound bag of salt on the gunnel and climbed aboard Captain Donald's boat. What's he doing? Then he took a long piece of rope, and sat on the gunnel. What in the hell? And lashed both bags of salt to his body. Oh my goodness. And then, Laura! Huey pushed himself overboard. God damn it. Is he nuts? And sank to the bottom. When Jimmy realized what had happened, he is nuts. He sprinted around the shore, jumped into another skiff, and rushed out to the dotted eye. By the time he got there, it was too late. In about 20 feet of water, Huey was dead. At least that's what Jimmy said. Oh, yeah, he's dead, but I, I didn't dive in to confirm it. Instead, Jimmy motored back ashore and called Donald. Hello? Uh, Mary Margaret, let me speak to Captain Donald. It's an emergency. Who is this? It's Jimmy. Donald! Telephone call! It's an emergency! Hello, this is Captain Donald. Donald, it's uh, Jimmy, and uh, there's been a terrible accident. Uh, Huey is dead. What? Oh, well, I guess it's not an accident. Huey killed himself. What did you say? Then Jimmy got into his wetsuit and met Captain Donald on the steamboat wharf. They jumped into another skiff and rushed out to the dotted eye. Then Jimmy dove and untied the corpse and brought him to the surface. 
he and Captain Donald muckled the body into the skiff. Sweet Jesus, Mary and Joseph, have mercy on his soul. They went ashore and then put Huey's body in the bed of Captain Donald's pickup. Then drove up to Donald and Mary Margaret's house. Donald, what happened? No time to explain. I've got to call the Coast Guard about our, our, our dead stern man. The Coasties wouldn't send a boat all the way to Matinicus to pick up a dead man, but they agreed to meet halfway. So Donald and Jimmy returned to the harbor, loaded the body into the dotted eye, and steamed toward the mainland. Ten miles from Matinicus, they made the transfer. Here you go, one dead stern man. Rest in peace, Huey turned around and headed home. Huey, who had no family or money, was given a pauper's funeral. Knox County seized his only asset, the Hondomatic, to defray the cost of the burial. Captain Donald never actually sold the Honda to Huey, but after the suicide, Captain Donald had no interest in the bike. So, Jimmy rode it down to the ferry the next month and the motorcycle was sold at auction in Rockland. And Captain Donald had to find another stern man, his third in a year. Had Huey learned the truth, his girlfriend was screwing around on him. With another stern man, she was pregnant, and most of the island knew it. Many a man is making friends with death, even as I speak, for lack of love alone. Thank you for listening, and remember, the Crash Program is commercial-free thanks to listener support via Patreon, where five bucks a month gets all sorts of perks, including a Mary Margaret sticker. I'm sure you'd want that. And access to the Patreon-only audio collection from my time in the U.S. Coast Guard fighting the war on drugs and the war on Haitian refugees. And remember, be careful on Tough Island. He's big and strong, he's sad and mad.